Well, thank you, Elijah. And it is good to be home at Foundry today. We're in a cruciform sermon series, and we'll be breaking open God's Word to Romans chapter 6 today. Romans chapter 6. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that people don't always open their Bibles. But if you've got a phone, if you've got some way that you access God's Word, I I encourage you to have it within view um, in this moment. Uh, Aaron, as a young man, showed lots of promise. He enrolled in prestigious Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and double majored in French and mechanical engineering with a minor in piano performance. Seeing his promise, Intel Corporation, you know, the makers of the computer chips, hired him as an engineer, and Aaron moved to the American West. He had a career with Intel, but it was interesting as he worked there how the call of the outdoors of the American West resonated with him. And so he quit his promising job, went to work for an outdoor retail company, and began to pursue his real passion. Within the year, he had climbed all of the uh, 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado, where he was living. And uh, this particular April, Aaron decided to take an easy trip. And so he drove down to Canyonlands National Park in Utah, parked his car at at the trailhead, and went for his day trip. He was going through Horseshoe Canyon, and then he was going to go through this slot channel canyon called Blue John Canyon. And as Aaron navigated the narrow canyon all alone, having a great time on his adventure, he got to a part of the slot where he put his hand against the wall, and an 800-pound boulder came tumbling through the slot canyon hit his left hand, and pinned his right hand firmly against the wall. Aaron looked, and he realized all he had was what was in his backpack. 22 ounces of water, two burritos, a cheap imitation Leatherman knife, and a water uh, dispenser began to take inventory of what he had there. He began to chip at the rock. It was a nice day to go hiking. It was not a nice night to be in the canyon. And so from 3.05, when the boulder fell, the temperature shortly after was falling as well, and he was cold and shivering through the 40s. No way to get out. Sunday came and went. Monday came and went. Tuesday came and went. And there was Aaron having to reconcile the fact that in this place, the great adventure that he had planned was going to come to an end. It was going to come to an end with his death. 
Have you ever looked at your Christian life as a great adventure that you sought out on, and then suddenly everything seems to have gone terribly wrong? It was not at all what you envisioned. The Bible has a number of promises for us when we come to Christ. The prophet Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart, quoting the Lord, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. The angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, Jesus, means God saves, the Lord saves, and because he will save the people from their sins. You see, the, the Christian life is about being free from sin. Jesus said it this way, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the household, but a son is a part of it forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Apostle Paul writing to Titus says this, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly pleasures and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see, often when the adventure that we are living with God Seems like it's going terribly wrong, it's because of sin. And Paul in Romans 6 is dealing with this very issue, this very question. If God saves us and forgives us, then shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that grace looks good? God erases the record and we continue to be who we were, only God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us. And so that's the basic question. And as we look at Romans chapter 6, that's what starts off this section. Now, now follow me here on what we're going to look at in Romans chapter uh, 6. First of all, Paul has a question, then he has an answer. Then he explains what his purpose is in his argument, and then he tells us how to get there. So let's start first with the question. If God is a God of grace, why not just sin and let God forgive us? The answer, verse 2, by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then finally, Paul's purpose, which we read about in verses 12 through 14, is that we become instruments of righteousness. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that's the one you're walking around in, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness, body to sin as, as, as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought from life, death to life and offer 
the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. When I first became a Christian, I always heard that you sin every day in word, thought, and deed, and then I read the Bible and couldn't find it. Now, it might be experientially true, but it's not the design for which life is created. And Paul is following this particular argument. And he's saying, what God wants for you is for you to be an instrument of righteousness, not an instrument of wickedness. Now, some of you know instruments can be used for good purposes or bad purposes. If I had a pocket and I had a pen, I could have a pen where I could have corrected what I should have said instead on my, on my notes here, and, and it would be an instrument of righteousness. But if it leaks in my pocket and ruins my shirt, well, an instrument of wickedness. Now, here, here's, a, here's a quote that actually happened in my family. A lawnmower, instrument of a good thing. When my uh, brother was born back in 1971, my grandmother had come to stay with us for the event, and my dad, dad walked into the living room and told my grandmother, now, mother, don't get excited, but come into the yard and help me find my fingers. <laughs> no joke. So you can have an instrument that is used for a good purpose and an exceedingly bad one. And God intends your body to be an instrument for good purposes. So, how is it that Paul navigates us from God is a God of grace to we should be instruments of righteousness, not of wickedness? Well, he has three basic arguments, and I want you to follow these with me through God's Word. Uh, let's look at verses 1 through 4. First point today, Christ died to bury your old man. Verses 1 through 4, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that we, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, may live a new life. Christ died to bury your old man. Heaven's nurse went to the great physician, and she described a problem that was happening on the ward. She said, we got this old man. He blows smoke in the face, everyone who walks in there. He lies about the true nature of his condition. We have no idea how to treat him. How are we supposed to help him get better? And the great physician said, oh, he's not supposed to get better. He's supposed to die. Just then, a Baptist pastor in the waiting room watched as a person coming out of surgery was wheeled by. And he went to the great physician and he said, I cannot believe the extreme, extreme makeover of this woman. She looks fantastic. Nothing like she went into the surgery. And the great physician said, well, it's unfortunate, but the operation was a failure. She wasn't supposed to look better. She was supposed to die. You see, the Bible describes this sin nature that we were born with as our old man or our old lady. 
And this passage in Romans 6 gets to the point of why Christ died for us. That we might be saved. That we might be forgiven. And when we surrender to Christ, and He forgives us, and we begin to walk with Him, the Bible says a number of things happen. First of all, we're adopted. We're now a child of God. Secondly, we're born again. The old me is dead. I'm a new creation. And lastly, we are initially sanctified, set apart, made holy. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 says this, uh, For you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord and by His Spirit. So this is what happens when we come to Christ and He gives us faith to believe and He saves us. But that's not the end of the adventure. It's the beginning of the adventure. And so in some measure, the old me is gone, but as we walk with Jesus, we still recognize there is still an old man or an old lady around trying to call the shots for us. And the Bible makes clear that saved Christians should be filled with the Spirit. And you say, well, don't I have the Holy Spirit? When I'm saved, well, absolutely. And isn't my old man in some measure dead when I'm saved? Absolutely. But what begins to happen after we walk with Jesus is a thing we call progressive sanctification. Uh, The Bible uses the term crucifixion, and some things just don't die easy, like our old man, our old lady. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, Jesus talking to people who are saved. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul talking says, may the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And so there is this initial sanctification, this initial death to our old self. So it is true that when you come to know Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. But there is still this reality. Have you noticed it? That the old voice is still calling. Jesus died to bury your old man. And the Bible seems to promise that there is a point in time through which the process of death will result in freedom from the death. Now, this passage, as as, uh, Dr. Ayers told me last week, talks about what happens when we come to Christ. But it also shows us the nature of dying to self that God wants to accomplish while we are still in our mortal bodies. What should we expect in complete death to self. What should we expect in being sanctified through and through? Well, not faultlessness. We should never expect this side of eternity not to make mistakes. We shouldn't even expect to be free from all temptation. Jesus faced temptation. But a deliverance from slavery to the old voice calling the shots. Jesus died to bury your old man. Not only did Jesus die to bury your old man, but Jesus died, verses 5 through 7, 
to set you free from slavery. Notice what Paul says here. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, and we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. It was contract negotiation season. And some slaves went to Jesus in the HR department because they had some grievances. And they said, that old man makes me do things that are not in my job description. Tell him to get some sensitivity training. That old lady, she takes me in the back room, and what I do there embarrasses me and shames me. It's not right. We want to change the terms of our contract. We need some help with the old man, the old lady. And Jesus said, well, the old man and the old lady, it's not supposed to be nicer. And training won't help the old man and the old lady. The only solution is the old man is supposed to die. The old woman, she's supposed to get killed. It's true. It's a definition of slavery. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will make you stay longer than you want to stay. Sin will make you pay more than you want to pay. Verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. At some point in that canyon, Aaron punctured his thumb with the knife he was using to chip away at the rock, and he realized his hand didn't hurt. And he heard the decomposition gases hiss as they escaped. And he realized, my hand is dead. It's a body of sin. And you're not supposed to stay with it. You've got to be liberated from it. Some people will look at, famously, chapter 7 of Romans. Oh, I do the things I don't want to do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And they will say, well, there it is. There's your proof text. We should sin every day in word, thought, and deed. But Paul is already presenting the argument against that in verse six, in chapter 6. And, and the The reality is that Christ died, not just to save us in our sin, but to save us from our sin, to free us from slavery. First, Christ died to bury your old man. Secondly, Christ died to set you free from slavery. Thirdly, Christ died to make you alive in him. Notice these verses 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, 
in the same way that Christ died on the cross, in the same way cruciform living, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the same way, the word we get logic from, consider yourselves. Logically deduce from the facts that you are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Christ died. Christ died to make you alive in him. The landlord of the temple received a complaint from two warring roommates who appeared to him and said this. That old man sharing the room with me has posters on the wall, says stuff, has friends over, talks in such a way that looks nothing like God. And the people that I have that come here are embarrassed because they know I'm trying to follow Jesus. What are we going to do about this space? And the landlord of the temple said, I've got a solution. Let's take a two-inch wide paintbrush and paint a white stripe down the center of the room. All right, now, person following Jesus, you stay on this side of the room, and oh man, oh lady, you stay on that side of the room. And this will be a solution. No, that's not what the landlord of your temple is saying to you today. Because the old man, the old lady, will not stay on that side of the room. The old man, the old lady doesn't need to be confined. He or she needs to die. And so today, you might be looking at the beginning of this new year, and like me, because as Dr. Ayer said, we preach to ourselves, we see issues. And you say, well, you know, I, I really am struggling with wanting to take revenge against somebody. Maybe I should go back there and pick up a one-year Bible and read the Bible through with Foundry Church this year. And you should. And you should die. Maybe you're struggling because there's someone in your life you just can't find the strength to forgive. And you think, maybe I should join one of those 15 small groups at Foundry and they will help me navigate my life. And you should, and you should die. Maybe there are things that you just keep going back to, old behaviors. You don't want to do them. And you think, maybe I should pray and fast for 21 days at the beginning of this year, and it will help me. And you should, and you should die. Prayer and fasting is a great way to bring about death. You might say, well, Pastor Keith, I I just don't see what you're saying about death in this passage. Do I really need to die? Can I point out to you what the verses of this chapter say? Verse 2, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, therefore we were buried with him. You bury dead things through baptism into death, in order that just Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified. 
Verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ. Verse 9, since Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. You don't go to a graveyard to recruit people to your side of an argument. You don't go to a mortuary to hear the latest gossip. And even if you do, nobody repeats it. Dead people don't spend all their energy defending themselves and trying to present the best face to the world. But a graveyard is a great place to find a missionary. Dead girls make the most reliable friends ever. And dead guys, you never saw an army like one of those. Hell, hell trembles. Oswald Chambers, in the best-selling devotional of the last century, my utmost for his highest, put it, puts it this way, on the issue of dying to self, sanctification. There's always a tremendous battle before sanctification is realized. Something within us pushing against the demands of Christ. When the Holy Spirit begins to show us what sanctification means, the struggle starts immediately. Jesus says, if any man comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In the process of sanctification, the Spirit of God will strip me down until there is nothing left but myself, and that is the place of death. Am I willing to be myself and nothing more? Am I willing to have no friends, no brother, no father, no self-interest, simply to be ready for death? That is the process of sanctification. Am I willing and determined to hand over my simple naked self to God? Once I am, he will sanctify me completely and my life will be free from being determined and persistent towards anything but Christ. Oh, is the room in which you're living divided. It's not time to make the old man stay on his side of the room. It's time that the old man dies so that the Holy Spirit can have complete run of the place. So there was the Aaron. Aaron Ralston, 27 years old. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. You know, Aaron was supposed to go to work on Tuesday, and he was a reliable employee. And his, his boss, Brian, said, well, it's not like Aaron not to come back. Um, I think maybe I'll see if there's something wrong if uh, he's not back tomorrow. And so while Aaron was dehydrating, losing touch with the reality of the situation, unable to process really what was having, happening and not really able to come up with a solution, and the hours were proceeding on, maybe you know the story, 127 hours, came to the conclusion that it was going to mean death. On Wednesday, 
Brian reported Aaron missing, and they got in touch with his mom in Denver. And as they tried to figure out what had happened, they, through credit card transactions, were able to determine that Aaron had come down through Moab, Utah, and Aaron's mom figured out that she knew enough of the answers to his secret uh, questions online to break into his email. Let that be a lesson to you. (laughs) And though he had left no note, which was unlike Aaron, they were able to figure out that the National Park Service knew which trailhead his truck was parked at. And so by Thursday, a search was underway. Now here was the problem for Aaron. Aaron was in a 100-foot deep slot, two feet wide. Even if he had taken a cell phone, even if he had left a note, no one is going to find him in there. And even from hour number one, Aaron, a mechanical engineer, looking up at the situation, trying to figure out how he could rig with his his water bottle, which he had fashioned into a rope, some way to extract the stone, some way to provide leverage. He knew that hand was going to have to come off, and he knew his knife was not sharp enough to get through it. Aaron's mom conveyed the Methodist women and said, we've got to pray. And somehow in those hours of Thursday when life was about to ebb away, it suddenly occurred to Aaron, I cannot cut through the bones in my wrist, but I can break them. And so, snap, one bone breaking, echoing through the canyon. Snap, the other bone echoing through the canyon. And then the little knife, one layer at a time. The pliers, the tendons. An hour-long surgery. And Aaron, when he got to the artery, said, I almost forgot to put on the tourniquet. The last was the nerve. His arm was on fire, even though part of it was about to fall off, and it did. And there he fell. And he said, well, at least I don't die here. Aaron, with his tourniquet in hand, was now left to traverse the rest of Blue John Canyon, at the end of which was a 60-foot blind rappel, which he had to conduct with one arm. And he got over it somehow. And at the bottom of that rappel, there was a puddle of water with a dead raven floating in it. He tossed the dead raven, two liters of water, and began to walk, wondering, sometimes hallucinating, am I going to be able to make it? He stumbled upon a Dutch couple and their 11-year-old son who had two Oreos. And the dad stayed with Aaron trying to walk him seven miles back to his car. It was an iffy proposition. The mom and the son went to get help. But Aaron knew that it was an 800-foot ascent in sandy soil that he'd have to climb to get to the the, uh, 
the car, and at this point, it was a serious question, even with the help that he'd received, whether he'd be able to make it. It seemed almost certain that he'd die right there. But then, the helicopter whirled. The blades were heard. And the helicopter that Aaron's mom had put in the sky saw the two figures walking at the base of the climb. Aaron Ralston, kind of a hero of mine, the man who cut off his hand to save his life. Your old man, your old lady, enslaving you, has been around with you just about as long as your right hand. And the solution to our sin nature is that our old man, our old lady, die. Tom Brokaw, NBC correspondent, took Aaron back to that slot canyon a year later and carved on the canyon walls next to the spot of blood left there a year later were these words, Aaron, 1975-2003. In a very real sense, there's an engravement in my life that says Keith, 1967-1984. It's when I came to know Christ. In another very real sense, there's an engravement in my life that says Keith, 1967-2003. It's when I kicked the roommate out and the Holy Spirit blew through my life with a cleansing, leaving me a person that I couldn't believe was me. And in a very real sense, I need to make an engraving in my life that says Keith. 1967 dash 2023 because I realize there's some death that needs to happen in my life this year. How about you? I encourage you. I encourage you to take that one-year Bible. I encourage you to be in a small group. I encourage you. Pray and fast these 21 days. And I hope in your your one-year Bible, You can draw a picture of a boulder and you can write on there your name and the dates for what God is doing in your life.